You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this afternoon, I'd invite you to open your Bibles first to Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Thus far, our reading from Galatians 3 about the removal of the curse through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we turn now to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, the verses 18 through 25, page 1,889 of your pew Bibles. Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism this afternoon will be considering the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read here about his suffering and its connection or our connection to it. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We are considering the Apostles' Creed, the articles of our faith, that which we as Christians believe and thereby receive the benefits of God. And Lord's Day 15, we are dealing with the suffering and the death of Christ as well as his judgment under Pontius Pilate. Let's read that together. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and has obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is perhaps no date on which Canadians, all of us together, are aware of the passage of time as we are on this date, January the 1st. I expect this reality is not lost on all of you that we have moved from one year into another year of our Lord. And it's typical that along with this heightened sense of the passage of time, we quickly move to introspection, to self-reflection, self-evaluation, and therefore also the New Year's resolutions. How am I doing? What can be improved? What can I expect in the year to come? Enter the New Year's resolutions. Work less, or work more maybe. Eat less, exercise more, etc. Now, it's not necessarily bad to think ahead of the year to come, to have some goals in mind for the year. There may be something wrong with the goals that you make if they are particularly self-focused, not focused on your relationship with the Lord, or not focused on the deeper, more important, and more eternal things of life. But yet, the idea of making resolutions, it's not in itself a bad thing. There is a famous historical example of someone who made resolutions, a Christian man, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. You've probably heard of him. He lived in Puritan, New England, around the beginning of the 1700s. I'd encourage you, in fact, to go and Google Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions when you go home and find out more about them because they are a picture of what a godly resolution can look like. I'd especially encourage you to go home and find out some more about Edwards and his resolutions if you are around the age of 18 or 19 or you're going to be that age soon or you just were that age a short while ago because 
It was while he was 18 and 19 years old that this man wrote down these resolutions. Let me give you a flavor of what these resolutions are about. He began this, these resolutions, this diary in which he wrote them by saying this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Now, if we are making New Year's resolutions, that is a very good introduction, a very good way of thinking. Let these only be based on the strength that God provides me, and maybe he only bless them insofar as they agree with his will. These are a few of his resolutions. He said, and this is, this is typical of the way that he wrote them, he'd write, resolved, and then follow the resolution. Resolved, never to speak evil of anyone, so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less, upon no account, except for some real good. It is older English, sometimes a little hard to understand. Here's another one. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I may have gained by them. Or a third one. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. And so resolutions can be a good thing. This afternoon we will consider one rock-solid resolution to keep in mind for this year, 2012, and for the rest of your life. It's our theme for this afternoon's sermon, Resolved to Live in Comfort and Joy because of the death, because of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Resolved to live in comfort and in joy because of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And with this resolution, of course, comes that same introduction that Jonathan Edwards had. We do so by the grace and by the strength of God. In fact, it must be, because the very foundation for such a resolution as this is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That's the, that's the foundation that the, the Heidelberg Catechism is working with. And you, you notice that immediately with those words, comfort and joy. Those words show up in Lord's Day 1, that famous Lord's Day. What comfort do you have in life and death? What is your only comfort? That I'm not my own, but that I belong to Jesus Christ. That I am in Christ. That's what His is mine. That what He has gained through His suffering and death applies to me. And also, of course, we'll realize that the foundation is that we are in Christ. And that the means by which we appropriate this is faith. We must believe in Christ. We must grab hold of these promises as God offers them out to us. Again, by His grace and strength. But perhaps some review is helpful for this. What do we mean when we talk about comfort and joy? If we're saying we resolve to live in comfort and joy, what does it look like if we live in that? What is comfort? Well, comfort is... 
deep down sense of security, protection, and love. That is being loved. A deep down reality sense of security, protection, and love. That nothing can disrupt us. Nothing can move us from our path. That we are, when all is said and done, safe. That's the kind of comfort that catechism is talking about. It's a comfort that goes far beyond the material or existential comfort that we often speak about when we say the word comfort. It's a spiritual, it's a total comfort. Perhaps an illustration will help. It is something like this experience. If you can get into it. It's being a 10-year-old boy or girl. You're lost in the middle of a snowy blizzard. You have no idea where you are. You're quite sure that you're going to die. Frostbite is beginning to form on your toes and fingers. Until suddenly, miraculously, you discover that you are standing at the front door of your very own house... And that opening the door, and there standing before you are your parents who embrace you in a large hug. Absolutely secure. Absolutely safe. Worried about not the frostbite on your fingers, not the storm outside, nothing of all the wind that's howling around you. You are secure in the arms of your parents. That feeling, right at the moment of the hug, on a spiritual level, is getting close to the comfort that the catechism is talking about. What is the experience of joy? Joy is an overwhelming sense of, of gratitude, of, of blessedness, of, of happiness. It is on a spiritual level, right after receiving that hug from your parents, you realize that all of your favorite friends and family are over and you're all going to celebrate your birthday together. But the question is not so much, what is this comfort and joy? Those hopefully give you a a picture, a sense of, of what that comfort and joy is like. But the question is, how do you experience it? It's nice to try and give a a picture of what comfort and joy feels like. But how do you experience it? Well, the very source from which we draw comfort and joy is nothing less than the suffering and death of Christ. It's going to take some work to unpack. We experience profound comfort and joy through what? The suffering and death of Christ. How can that be? Isn't Christ's suffering and death a terrible thing? How could they do us good? Well, that is precisely the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That his suffering was a a vicarious suffering. It was a suffering that was done for us, his people. And his death was an atoning death. It was done for the sake of us, his people. He suffered in our place. He died for our sins. What we deserve, Jesus Christ experienced. And what Jesus Christ deserved in his perfection and righteousness is what we 
experience. Comfort and joy. It's why he experienced that the suffering, the profound suffering, the agonizing death, that we might receive the deepest, most profound, incorruptible sense of comfort and joy imaginable. So this afternoon we'll consider seven aspects of this exchange, of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which bring us comfort and joy. The first aspect of his suffering and death that brings us comfort and joy is that his suffering and death is sufficient for all and effective by faith. Christ's work is sufficient for all believe and it is immediately effective for you. And there are several passages in scriptures that speak about the sufficiency, the universal sufficiency of Christ's death. Christ died for all. It's the clear teaching of scripture. From passages like 1 John 2 verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 10 verse 12 calls Jesus the once for all time sacrifice for sins. The Heidelberg Catechism as well addresses this when it says that Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Christ's death is sufficient for all. He paid for the sin of mankind. And this is what is to be boldly and sincerely proclaimed to all people the world over. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. You can say that unequivocally. That is the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. As we affirm that biblical truth, however, we need to also shore it up and make sure we don't wade into unbiblical territory when we consider universalism, the teaching that everyone is saved, or the teaching of hyper-Calvinism, that we don't need to proclaim this death of Jesus Christ because God already knows who he's going to save. And so proclaiming the gospel has no effect. And we do this... We, we hold together the sufficiency of Christ's death, but avoid universalism and hyper-Calvinism by holding together three truths from God's word. One is this point, the sufficiency of Christ's death and the well-meant offer of the gospel. We can say to unbelievers and hypocrites, Christ died for your sins. He did. There is no other sacrifice for sins. His is the only sacrifice for sins. Christ died for your sins. He has given his life in the once for all time sacrifice for sins. But at the same time, this truth and that reality of the forgiveness can be appropriated only by faith. You have to believe it. You have to trust it and not reject it. You have to embrace it. And then the reality of the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is yours. Completely 
effectively. And third, overarching all of this, is that God is sovereign. He has an eternal plan where he knows who are his. Faith is a gift from him. And at the same time, it's his will that we would go out boldly and unequivocally proclaim the gospel of Christ's suffering and death to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Christ's suffering and death, sufficient for all. That is what we proclaim. Focusing in even more to God's people, to those who live by faith, to those who embrace this gospel, we understand that Christ has done all this work specifically for you. That's the second aspect of the suffering and death of Christ that gives us profound joy and comfort, that Christ has done it specifically for his people. Let me read some passages to you. And it's almost across the board. When God's word speaks about the suffering and death of Christ, it includes us in that. It says it's for us. Every single time, it's hammering that truth home. He died for you. He suffered for you. Listen, Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Ephesians 5 verse 2 And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 John 4 verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And one more, the part that comes immediately after the the greeting that we that you received at the beginning of this worship service. Immediately after that greeting, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Christ's work is beautifully, specifically, and amazingly focused on his people. He has done this. He has suffered. He has died for us. We move to the third aspect now. As we look more at the mechanics of what's going on as Christ suffers and dies, one thing, the third aspect, is that Christ's suffering and death removes God's wrath as it removes the reason for God's wrath. It takes away sin And it brings us into favor with God. We've already read 1 John 2 verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. Let's focus in on those words there. Atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice means two things. The atonement of Christ means two things. It has a twofold effect for God's people. One is that it removes the reason for God's wrath. There is a reason why people are under the wrath of God, and that is their sin. 
Their sin is offensive to God. Their sinfulness is offensive to God. God's wrath remains on those who are in their sin and who are outside of Christ. That's the reason for God's wrath. It's sin. The atoning death of Christ removes that. He forgives our sins. They, They no longer cling to us. God doesn't see our sin when he looks at us. Christ removes it. But also, along with that, Christ removes the wrath of God completely. And he restores us to a place of of favor with God. You pick that up in Ephesians 5, a passage we read earlier. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Through his suffering and death, Jesus Christ made us pleasing, delightful to God. Not, not only is God's wrath, or the reason for God's wrath removed, but God's wrath is removed altogether so that all he has for us is his delight, his joy. A fourth aspect of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ that gives us joy and comfort is that his work removes the curse of the law, which we, along with all people, deserve. In Deuteronomy 27, the people read together there, Cursed is everyone who does not do all the things recorded in the book of the law. It's intended, those curses are for everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. You don't have to do much self-evaluation and introspection to realize that we're guilty of breaking that. That those curses of God would stand against us. But for the work of Jesus Christ, his suffering and death. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Those curses that are outlined in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. Deuteronomy 28 is a a terribly difficult chapter to read. It outlines the curses that will face God's people if they rebel against him. And those curses are profound. They are terrible. And they're summed up in chapter 30 with two words, death and destruction. But Paul declares that Christ became a curse for us. He suffered those curses outlined in God's law for us. He perfectly obeyed God's law and he experienced God's curse for us. So that those terrible things that happen to those who don't do everything written in the book of the law don't happen to us. Because we believe in him. Because we find our life in him. And so in Christ, you no longer experience the curse of God. You see how Christ's suffering and death might bring comfort and joy. Because where there is no curse, there is only the amazing and abundant blessings of God. Christ's work saves us from God's wrath from God's curses, 
And along the same lines, the full extent of these things, everlasting damnation. And all that Christ has done, He saves us, body and soul, from God's anger and curse. And the full extent of those is hell and everlasting damnation, everlasting punishment. That is the end. That's the result for all who whose sins are not atoned for by the blood of Christ. See, Christ is the only sacrifice for sins. And so outside of Christ, there is no sacrifice for sins. And so God's wrath, God's curse, and everlasting destruction is all that is left for sin. But in Christ, when you confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, our Lord, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He suffered under Pontius Pilate, and that He was crucified, dead and buried. When you wholeheartedly confess that out of a heart of faith, then that threat of everlasting damnation is swallowed up by the work of the Lord. No longer hangs over you. All you have left is comfort and joy. A sixth aspect of the work of Christ that gives us comfort and joy is that Christ's work means, because Christ suffered, it means that we don't suffer for sin anymore. That our suffering then is discipline, it's instruction, it's for the purpose of making us holy and bringing us near to God. Our, our suffering is positive. That's what scripture teaches us. Now, you might think that because Christ suffered, then we must not have to suffer anymore. We wouldn't have to do it anymore. But while our suffering has a different character than Christ's, we don't do it to atone our sins. It's clear that suffering still has a part in the Christian life. In fact, it has a large part. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, To this, to to suffering, you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The suffering that Christians experience in this world is the suffering of of living in a broken world. The suffering of aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. The suffering of persecution because we stand for truth and reality. A reality that the world rejects. A suffering because of the brokenness of sin and sin, but not a suffering that is punishment from God. It's of an entirely different character than what Jesus Christ has suffered. In fact, James urges us to accept trials as good. God is bringing you these things for your good because through them, the Lord is going to build your faith. And the stronger your faith, the more you recognize and appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for you and the greater your comfort and joy. Yes, suffering, but completely different way. All for positive, all to bring us near to God, to build our faith in Him. And one more, one final aspect of Christ's suffering and death that brings us comfort and joy, and many things along with that, is that 
It not only saves us from God's wrath, God's curse, from everlasting damnation, but the suffering and death of Christ obtains for us grace and righteousness and eternal life. We don't just get brought to a a place of neutrality so that we can fall back into the sin from which we were redeemed. No, God redeems us from sin and suffering and gives us grace and righteousness and eternal life. The work of Jesus Christ brings us to a place of of real change and, and real hope. It brings us to a place of comfort and joy. Safe with God, moving forward in our joy as we serve Him. No longer burdened by guilt or sin. No longer burdened by the demands of the law. No longer burdened by a need for self-fulfillment or self-salvation. Restored to a vital relationship with God. A relationship that will grow and grow and grow and grow. A place of growth. A place of blessing. The grace of God has appeared, Paul writes it to Titus, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Do we have the impression that Christ's suffering and death allows us to sin? Christ suffered for my sin. He died for it. Therefore, I can sin. In fact, The opposite is true. The extent of his suffering and death shows us how truly terrible sin is. But his death does not allow us to sin. Completely the opposite. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ allows us and empowers us to live holy and godly lives. We're given grace, righteousness, And eternal life. Because through his suffering and death, we, ourselves, become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And changes us. And so, brothers and sisters, in this year to come, Don't be overwhelmed by resolutions that are going to burden you with demands that promise to make you better or smarter, stronger, faster, more attractive, or whatever they might promise. If there is one resolution to have, that would be to understand and appreciate and believe more deeply the reality of what Christ has done for you in his suffering and death. Appreciate and believe all that Christ has done for you. But at the center of it is his suffering and death. And when you do that, growing more and more in that knowledge, more and more believing it, more and more understanding what that means, more and more being confronted with your sin and receiving the grace of forgiveness, more and more being empowered to live holy and godly lives, then more and more you'll be filled with profound comfort and inexpressible joy in the service of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.